developing states, particularly many Pacific Island countries, are considered to be among the most at-risk regions in the world from climate change. Listen on to hear presenters at the 2018 Pacific Update discuss measuring the effectiveness of climate change adaptation at the community level, the neoliberal ecological modernisation framing of vulnerability and dispossession in the climate change agenda, evaluating climate change relocation in Fiji, and gender transformative climate change action. Good afternoon, you all. I hope you had a good lunch. And thank you for joining this uh, second part of the climate change. As you know, we had first session in the morning. Now we're coming to the second part of it, which is starting now, 1.30. And I would like to thank every one of you. Uh, the, in particular, the presenters or the panelists, uh, those of you who have much interest, a lot of interest in this area, who have joined us this evening, thank you very much. Firstly, um, I'm from Vanuatu, at the Ministry of Finance. And as uh, so I've we'd like to welcome you all this afternoon to this session and I hope uh, the presenters or the panelists all I hear um, should be four and you are allowed 15 minutes in your presentation. So May I or I would like to ask the panelists or the presenters to come up from here. There's two sides. You can sit either here or the other side. Thank you. So we shall uh, proceed. Um, okay. Um, This is panel 2B, climate change. Japan Pacific ICT here in this room, the uh, video conference room, so all are here in, in this room. Thank you very much. And uh, I'm the chair, Hendrickson Malsokle from Vanuatu. First, uh, first presenter for this afternoon, He will be presenting on on the subject of how we are we thinking the question of in relation to climate change are we think are we thinking yet measuring the effectiveness of climate change adaptation at the community level in small island developing states. Uh, we had uh, I think this other co-assist presenter, but perhaps they are not here this evening, and so William, you will be the main speaker for this afternoon, so yes, welcome you, and thank you very much. Uh, from 
this university, William. So the from uh, UNESCO, is it? Eh? No, from uh, USP. Okay. So William, thank you very much, and now the floor is yours. Okay. Um, good good afternoon. Um, and Talofalava, everyone. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Honorable Speaker, <laughs> so the chair of uh, this session. Um, I know um, they always put me to speak first after lunch uh, for two reasons. Uh, one, I'm an expert of food security. Uh, so if you're sleeping, that means you are not food secured, you are over food secured. Um, and, um, and secondly, um, I'll try my very best not to make you fall asleep. So. Uh, thank you very much. Um, if you look at the, the slide there, there is a very uh, huge question there. Are we sinking yet? So it's, it's a very important question because everybody says that we are sinking. We are sinking. It reminds me of the joke from Germany. I will tell you that during the reception tonight. Um, <clears throat> but we're looking at measuring the effectiveness of, uh, of climate change adaptation, uh, whether they are contributing to us sinking or they are helping keeping us afloat. So it's very important for us. And if we look at um, the slide as well, there are a lot of names there. So it's a collaborative work. So I am their mouthpiece because in Samoa, I am the orator. So I speak, that's all I do. <laughs> and it's cool. We also have Pachiliai here at the back. Um, it's one of the, the, the main persons we work on um, on this task. So if you have any question, uh, direct all of them to him. Um, did I just turn off the power? <laughs> it's a disaster already. <laughs> right, yeah, so just a brief outline. I'm going to touch briefly on the loss and damage agenda. It's a very sexy agenda right now for us small island development states, but it's unsexy to the other countries. Um, and then we will um, I'll speak briefly about the toolkit and provide some examples, key lessons, challenges and way forward. And for your information, I've been given 15 minutes. Yes. I cannot cover all of this um, and a lot of the, the work that was done in 15 minutes. And for gender balance chair, I'm the only male here. There are three females, yes. so I should be given some extra no, no, minutes no, 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 no. Um, no, no. on that. Um, just to briefly, uh, the loss and damage uh, came from the Paris Agreement, Article 8. It's a reinforcement of the Warsaw International Mechanism. So if you want to know more about that, read that yourself. Uh, the important thing uh, that I'm trying to bring this, because uh, what I'm going to talk about later is not a floating uh, lock alone in the middle of the ocean. It's well connected to all uh, the country's uh, plans as well as the international uh, agreement that we are championing now. Um, I mean, uh, PG is now the president of that. I'm very proud of that. I'm also a citizen of Tuvalu for your information. Um, yeah, so the, the project uh, was um, a partnership between UNESCO and us, the Pacific Center for Environment and Sustainable Development here at the University of South Pacific, but it was funded by our brothers from Malaysia. So we're very, very grateful for that. And um, because there, there's a huge missing link here, there's lack of data as it was uh, correctly hi highlighted by Professor uh, Satish in the morning. So uh, came up with this idea, okay, we should start doing something about it. So we came up with this project toward climate change resilience, minimizing loss and damage in Pacific Islands, small island states. But the, the first question is, um, how can we measure loss and damage? Uh, do we have loss and damage? So there have been a lot of questions. This, uh, so we tried to develop a toolkit 
that try to do that. And especially making it worse is right down at the community level. That the government level is already no data. And imagine down the, communi uh, the community level, it's already like there's no uh, well-documented uh, data there. So it was um, trial in five countries between 2014 2016. And I like the egg there on the other side because it looks like it's cooked already, floating in a very hot ocean. Um, so just... Um, uh, for your information, at the meantime, there is no common definition of loss and damage. Everybody defines loss and damage their own way. So it was also an opportunity for us to come up with our definition. I am not going to tell you the definition because it's also very, very valuable. And it's written in their own mother tongue of the countries there. So it's, de it's defined by the very people who are affected by it. And uh, whatever the UN mechanism says and whatever their definition of loss and damage is quite very different from what's happening on the ground. But uh, the LND there, the impacts of extreme weather events and also the slow onset of climatic events that people have not been able to cope with or adapt with. So this is very, very interesting because there are a lot of question marks coming out of that. And there's a concept of residual losses and damage from the climate change. It's like the, the losses on top of adaptation. So just to brief you about the toolkit. It's a participatory uh, toolkit, and it focuses on two uh, sectors, the agriculture and the tourism sectors. It was the first of its kind to be developed. Um, I don't know about the world because there are some that haven't been written, but for the Pacific, yeah, it's the first of its, of its kind. We had a meeting in Bonn, uh, GIZ one, in February, and then a lot of loss and damage practitioners who came, but I was very proudly saying like, it was the first of its kind, and they all agreed with me. Um, and it collects relevant information on the depth and scope of vulnerability, exposure, impacts, coping and adaptation, and evaluating the impacts of coping and adaptation as well, and identifying the limits of coping and adaptations. And these limits could be both from the community itself and the actions themselves, or also because the hassles are just too much for them to, to handle. Um, and we also try to understand the root causes of the increasing and decreasing or the existence of loss and, and damage in the community. It was a really big challenge for, for us. Uh, and, uh, the, the methodology or the toolkit was derived from um, a very nice um, structure they developed by um, Coco Werner. She's a, she's a well-known researcher on, um, on loss and damage, and she's published a lot of work when she was with the university, the UN uh, University. So the method we use is following this, uh, this structure as well. It's uh, looking at the vulnerability and the impacts, and looking at the type of stressor, whether extreme or slow, and then the impacts, and then from the impacts down to the coping or adaptation, and then the questions um, on the effectiveness of those and it's right at the household level. So it goes right to the household, the questionnaires at the household. It's also a focus group targeting the members of the community because sometimes there are some interventions at the communal level, the community interventions. So we ask those questions of the community interventions as well as the household, the farmer, uh, the tourist uh, operator, the boat uh, owner and all those uh, different uh, groups. So this is like a loss and uh, damage flow uh, chart. I'm sorry about the quality. Um, I call it a loss and found uh, flow chart <laughs> at, at the moment. And if you look at it, there are three major components of the toolkit. 
The number one, the C1 on top, is focusing on the type of stressor and the impacts. And then there are baseline uh, data you collect and also the indicators. That's so the green parts are there. And then uh, the component number two is looking at the type of coping and adaptation community um, um, practice. And it varies. I tell you, there are a lot and a lot of coping uh, strategies at the household level uh, that they are doing. And then looking at the effectiveness, if there are impacts uh, after the intervention, when the, the, the stressor happen again. It's very important here. We have to to look at the real reason why the adaptation was done or the coping was done in the first place. If it was done because the stressor was a drought, so the test of effectiveness is the next drought or the next cyclone or the next uh, sea level uh, rise or the next storm surge. So it's very important here. In terms of um, like from the monitoring and evaluation side, uh, we, we tend to ask these questions going beyond the scope of the normal uh, uh, monitoring and evaluation project uh, based one. I will talk about that uh, later. But the most important part is, is the component, component number three. If you look at the component number three, it will try to, to find the real reasons why there are still impacts after the uh, adaptation. And uh, because it's a participatory one, we struggle to find a tool that try to bring up the attribution, to separate the attribution and contribution. I will talk about that uh, later. But the outcome of this all ties back to the adaptation or the development planning process. It's a very good one because it informs the development processes and also the, uh, the adaptation processes at the community level. Some people are very, very emotional. We're very emotional when we did this. They, they really cried. And some, they, they actually swore a lot. They were very disappointed. Uh, but it depends on, um, on, on who brought the intervention. Uh, this is just an example. I'm not gonna talk about the whole five countries. I don't have all the, the minutes uh, in the world to talk about that. I just provide some basic examples. So look at the agriculture sector from Solomon Islands, and there are the list of stresses. And then look at the main loss and damage uh, like um, experienced by the sectors. The loss of between 50 to 100% of the crops and livestock when some, well, some of this uh, occurs. Less fish for sale. And then the reduce of the arable land due to coastal uh, erosion. And the health and also the, the social culture. And then there are different coping mechanisms, like the change in the cultivation, the stop farming. Some they actually stop farming or they shift uh, the source of livelihood. They started becoming fishermen and fisherwomen. And then some uh, ecosystem-based uh, management are there. But it's interesting what's coming up next. So many of the coping adaptation techniques fail. And the main reason was a lack of knowledge on how to manage new crops. Because most of the interventions from the agriculture department, they just send out uh, the new varieties, that says distribute the new varieties to all the farmers without giving the, the proper knowledge. And uh, because those varieties uh, might be different from the varieties the farmers are used to. They just send out these fishing gears uh, and all these things. And when the farmers try those uh, to plant them and they never work, the farmers just throw all of them to the, to the rubbish bin. So it's very important uh, to consider that. And the lack of land is a main uh, interesting one. And when we look at this, marriage becomes an adaptation strategy. So those people who are living on those uh, man-made lacoons in uh, Malaita, and then they said marrying a highlander or a person from inland was an adaptation strategy. Yes, they call it a facilitated relocation strategy. <laughs> and then I say, I kind of like that one. 
because it suddenly makes the Highlander people look really sexy. <laughs> okay, so um, and the shifting from subsistence agriculture to new livelihood sources resulted in new negative impacts like overfishing and the cutting down of, of mangroves. And then uh, this is an example of a tourism uh, sector uh, from Fiji. The, uh, the interesting thing about this, um, this site, 100% damage of this ecotourism after TC Winsett in 2016. And this was done one week before the, the, the cyclone hit. And particularly I saw some uh, crying people there during the discussion here as well. Uh, this is from Samoa. Um, the PG erosion and all these uh, changes and then they have their behavioral ecosystem and infrastructure, beautiful seawall. And then there was a testimony from the owner of this. It's a very strong lady, like all the Samoan women, very, very strong. For your information in our culture, the women are stronger than the men, because we allow them to be. <coughs> so if you look at this, uh, like uh, the sea has moved inwards, and then after the intervention was done, it actually led to more erosion. It worsened the, the situation that it was before. So, I'm just coming down to some very important points here. The toolkit was very helpful in capturing the stories of vulnerability and impacts and coping adaptation strategies that happen right at the household level and at the community. And it's amazing the, the amount of effort these communities are putting into self-adapting. Uh, Sometimes they do it far before the government comes in. So it's, it's very encouraging to, to see or to collect some of these stories. About 90% of coping and adaptation strategies did not stop the loss and damage of sudden and, uh, and slow onsets uh, in port sectors. They reduced some, some were ineffective, and others increased uh, the vulnerabilities of the community. Uh, most, if not all, adaptation project M&E did not assess the adaptation against a real reason. And then uh, if you read the M&E report, uh, they say like, oh, we had a lot of food, like extra sweet potato, we sold them, then we did a lot of these things. And then you ask the people, uh, when there was a next cyclone, what happened? We all received food aid. And then they ask, okay, well, when the next drought coming, the, all of this failed. So it's a very important thing because uh, and then you look at the reports and the, the initial idea why these projects were done in the first place was a response to a drought in Papua New Guinea and also in Solomon Islands, in Marshall Islands and also in Tuvalu. But after when the next drought comes, it all goes back to zero. Is that a sign of resilience? But it's very important for us to consider this, uh, to look at the real reason and not to assess only the, the effectiveness of projects during the good times. Uh, most coping and adaptation actions were ineffective because of the increased intensity, frequency, and a lot of unknown information. Well, sometimes they say like the warning was not on time and was not really correct, but sometimes most of them ignore the warning. And then there was also mainly poor planning, resourcing, and the human collateral damage. They still cut down the forest and they thought the flood will stop. And then when it's flooded down in the coast area, they say, why it's flooded? Climate change, climate change, climate change. But they cut down the forest right down at the water catchment area. So it's very important, some important lessons that came up. Uh, in terms of moving forward, the toolkit was very good because it measured the multi-hazards versus the single hazard approach that we are using in adaptation now. Because if it's drought, we just come, let's distribute drought-tolerant crops. 
and then the people go and plant it right next to the sea, it doesn't grow. And sometimes they say drought tolerant and they plant it next to the river and the flood comes and take it out. So it's good to look at it a multi-hazard approach rather than just focusing on one because in reality, uh, everything we do are fully exposed to all different hazards, including ourselves. And then um, um, we add the new sectors. Uh, there's a need to add new sectors, especially the culture and the ecosystem or what they call a non-economic loss. We are still arguing right now. Why they call ecosystem services and culture and like the non-tangible is it as non-economic loss. So I'm very happy that we have a, a professor here with us. <laughs> he might help us uh, to uh, strengthen the fight against those guys in order to include this inside the, the framework as well as our method. Uh, they need to include loss and damage in adaptation planning, implementation and M&E. And this is a very interesting thing because it comes out in, in recent discussions to include climate risk management framework. Like, like looking before you actually adapt, you bring all the adaptation options in front of you. And then you say like in, in a case of a perfect scenario, there is no limit. I, I call it a wish list. What are the lists in front there? And then you come with your shopping list. Because most of us, are, most of these adaptations are determined by the limitation of resources. If the donor gives you $30,000, you go and build a seawall $30,000. But there, is, there are some very good case studies like in Tonga and some countries, where that one donor gives you $30,000, but you want a half a million seawall to build a really, really good one that is strong, uh, that is uh, well adapted, perfect design for the, for the situation. So what they do, they bring the 30 here, 30 there, 30 there, and the community raise funds to get that $500,000. So after CC Kita, those communities really showed the, the residents after the, the, um, the TC Kita that hit Tonga in the beginning of this year. It's, it's a different model, but in, in order we, this is what we want. This is technically a proven kind of adaptation. And then we bring the resources in to match this. No more directed or dictated from outside and say like, Ooh, we, we are poor, we are this, and we build $5 million churches. So it's very important for us to look at this. We need to shift because we always say we are constant mode of recovery. It's time for us to start the, the resilient uh, way. And the only way we can do that is look beyond. If we see in front here during the planning phase, looking at the loss and damage and residuals, and then we say, oh, if we do this, we do this, we do this, it won't work. Okay, let's do something else. Rather than uh, just trials and error on the spot, because it's a waste of money and it's a waste of everybody's time. So it's very important for us to look at this. And attribution versus contribution is a very difficult one. Because well, how can we differentiate between the impacts of a climate-induced hazard? In a cyclone, how much of a climate uh, change that contribute to TC Winston? We have good data on this uh, now with some of, uh, of my colleagues. But at the community level, they all said, oh, it was under that tree, but after two years, it's now under this tree. And then the people say, like, because the, the other neighbor built a seawall. So it changes the current and it goes in like this. So, but for myself, it goes to focus on, it's not versus. At the community level, it's both. It's attribution and contribution because the contribution contribute and intensify the impacts of climate change. Mm -hmm. So at the community level, it's very important. And that calls for data collection as if we heard it this morning, mm -hmm. baseline data collection and mm -hmm. continuing collecting data, mm -hmm. creating the data and then collecting the data and store them properly. So I think that's... Uh, so this was launched in COP23. 
in Bonn, Germany last year. For your information, they are all available online. Uh, if you want to uh, the uh, the link, you can just pay five dollars to me, and I'll give you the link. <laughs> yeah, so we are very grateful for the Malaysian um, Malaysia government um, and also the UNESCO um, and all the partners and the communities uh, we work with in all these five uh, five countries. I'm sorry, Jia Vanuatu was not in here, but if you have the, the cash, you can ask us and we can come and work with you in doing this in your country. So, are we, uh, are we sinking yet? No, we are not sinking. We are now transformed and we are adapting smarter every day. We learn from the lesson, lessons of the past and then we improve ourselves to the future. In the Tuvalu one, is a very good example. They fell, sea walls fail three times and then now they change. Okay, we're tired of building sea walls and we know it doesn't work. Let's reclaim the whole lagoon. And then people say it does, it, it can't do it, but they are doing it now and it's working. And now they change the narration as well. Before they say, let's get the visa to go outside, but now they say, we will never leave. We are going to fight. Ladies and gentlemen, as long as there is us here with all capacity and appropriate technology, finances and resources, and a good sense of common sense in our heads, mm. we will still survive. We are not going to sink. Thank you very much, Chair, and thank you very much, everybody. Thank you very much, uh, Mr. William. Um, thank you for that very uh, uh, interactive or, I may say, lively uh, <laughs> No one's sleeping. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, now we move to the to the next presenter. That is Kaushal uh, <coughs> from the Fiji Women's Rights Movement. Thank you. today um, and apologies for a very long confusing title in the, in the in the program itself that's what happens when you try to summarize your entire paper in one sentence um, so my presentation is taking a slightly different road from the existing three uh, panelists here because uh, it's I'm looking at climate change from a theoretical point of view uh, in particularly in reference to how vulnerability is being conceptualized uh, in, in contemporary neoliberal responses to climate change, uh, and in particular, why there are some gaps and limitations in using such models, and how human rights framing can help address those gaps. So I'm, I won't be able to cover all the aspects of the paper, so I have uh, particularly chosen to focus on uh, uh, one major aspect. Uh, first of all, um, I'll be looking at the framing of vulnerability within climate response um, and then uh, looking at deconstructing humanitarianism or humanitarian aid. And I feel like this is very relevant uh, point of discussion given the specific context and given the nature of aid that we receive uh, uh, from other governments and states. Um, and then move on to talk about what are the alternative ways of reconfiguring vulnerability. 
what are those other narratives which could be potentially be useful uh, for climate response? And one of those alternatives is, not necessarily alternatives, but one of those very important <laughs> ways in which we need to frame climate change response is using a human rights perspective. Um, so in reference to vulnerability, uh, how is vulnerability defined in contemporary climate change response? In most cases, um, there's this negative connotation being attached to vulnerability. To be vulnerable, uh, it means to be open to harm. And, and when we try to describe vulnerability in such a way that it elicits two major kind of response. First, response that if someone is vulnerable, therefore we must help them. Second response is, if there is a threat, therefore we must seek protection and security. We must build resilience. Um, why, the reason why vulnerability is important in climate change discourse is because climate change exacerbates vulnerability. For many of our Pacific Island countries, uh, vulnerability is very much related directly and indirectly to climate change impacts, whether it be loss of damage, whether it be uh, community in loss of income, food security, agriculture, uh, even the increasing threat of gender-based violence due to climate change, uh, and obviously uh, rising gender inequalities that is caused by climate change. But more importantly, I'd like to draw your attention to the fact that um, climate change is becoming a defining moment globally and in the present age. And as Pacific Island nations like Fiji, we are at the forefront of this narrative. So it becomes very, very important to know or to unpack how we are framing vulnerability uh, um, and, and how that is being perceived in the global stage. And one of the ways in which uh, vulnerability, um, one of the predominant ways in which vulnerability is framed is through humanitarian aid. Um, the reason why it's very, very important to unpack this notion is because once certain ideologies or concepts gain momentum, they, they form part of systems of governmentality in a sense that once we have certain ideas, such as humanitarian aid, it becomes part of institutions, it becomes part of conventions, it becomes part of responding to actions uh, at both international level and within community level. So. In, in one sense, when ideologies materialize, uh, they gain a momentum of its own. So if this becomes a predominant way in which we see vulnerability, then uh, it will become very, very difficult to deconstruct it. Uh, and as one narrative gains momentum, it gains momentum at the expense of the other. So if this is a predominant way, then what about the alternative ways in which we can reconceptualize vulnerability? And in most cases, what I'm referring to is in terms of climate change. Um, so most developed countries that are going through climate change are under-resourced and are aid-dependent. Uh, if you look at the Pacific Island nation countries, for example, the World Bank reports that uh, uh, since 1950s, uh, we have reported 207 disaster events, and it has affected 3.5 million people, costing in excess of US $6.5 billion. Without humanitarian aid flowing in, many Pacific Island nations, it would be very difficult for us to build climate resilience, number one, and number two, it will become very difficult for us to bring our economy back to that stable level. And the case is going to get worse, because the nature and the intensity of disasters is going to keep on increasing. 
but it is also very very important to realize the inherent gaps in solely relying on humanitarian aid one of the major critiques of relying on humanitarian aid is that it becomes part of the systemic logic of managing the poor or it becomes part of sentimental gift giving to distant sufferers so what happens in this case is that the relationality of what one person or what one state or nation does in one part of the world is distorted in terms of not trying to see that what actions are being taken in one side of the world is going to have impact on the other side of the world. So with humanitarianism comes this power trouble, the politics of power struggle, which compromises of the strong and the weak, the provider and the sufferer. So the power dynamics um, that, that this model of responding to climate response brings with it is the forging the asymmetries between the West and the developing nations that are most uh, impacted by climate change. But it's also important to recognize that dependency through aid and resources isn't without its cost. Because countries are investing in our nations not just because they want to provide relief and support, but it's also part of that global geopolitical system of power struggle between uh, foreign governments. So if you look at Pacific Island nations and the influx of aid that is flowing in, and the kind of attention that we are receiving, um, the United Arab Emirates, growing presence of France, India, Russia, Taiwan, Japan, all of these countries are investing because they have different political agendas. And recently, if you look into um, the conversation on geopolitical aid, um, China's investment in Pacific Island nations is, is to some nations a growing threat or growing concern. Reason why is because it's seen as a productive approach. It is seen as gaining stronghold. So in one sense, aid is used as a mechanism or means to maintain geopolitical stronghold over countries. But the greater question to ask is, what about the fact that those that are providing the aid are also the perpetrators of climate change? So if you compare the current emissions, uh, the Netherlands Environment Assessment Agency ranks China, US, India, Russia, Japan as top five carbon emitters. So what does that mean for a country that is suffering from the impacts of climate change, but is also receiving aid from those that perpetuate it? It means that our national strategic interests and investments are contingent upon the aid that is received. Therefore, it might be difficult to call for greater climate action as nation states to those that are providing aid to us. In this case, you can see an unequal trade-off where diplomacy, geopolitics takes the center stage, where we are conflating accountability with humanitarianism. And by doing so, we're putting everyone at greater risk. So that is the reason why it is very essential to reconfigure vulnerability. Um, I'm just using uh, this framing as, a, as an alternative explanation. Uh, so this is based on Butler's work on uh, vulnerability and dispossession. And what is being said there is that what Butler is trying to say is that it's only when we realize our relationality, then the condition of ethical responsibility and solidarity of resistance is, is established. What that means is it's only once we <coughs> individuals realize that our action is having impact on someone else, then that 
realization comes with a sense of ethical responsibility towards doing something about it collectively. Because it does not just affect me, it affects you, it affects everyone. So, in that sense, sorry, I just, in that sense, it's very, very important that climate change response remains politicized. Because a lot of neoliberal responses to climate change, such as market-based solutions, climate financing, all of these have depoliticized climate change. So politicization of climate change is very important, particularly in reference to human rights, because we need to recognize the climate change as a human rights issue. We need to place the vulnerable communities at the center of decision making, and we need to move away from a model where vulnerable subjects are seen as victims or vulnerable subjects are seen as passive aid recipients to the one where you realize that they have rights and therefore they can re demand for these rights to be met. So what does the human rights perspective offer? Um, slowly and slowly governments and institutions are re recognizing the role that human rights plays uh, in, in climate response. So you will see that human rights framework it has been adopted in various ways through its adaptation in, in vulnerability assessments that is being done through all the, the climate change response that goes through certain kind of gender lensing or human rights perspective, governments have adopted uh, uh, human rights framings to inform their no own national adaptation plans and so forth. So climate, what human rights perspective brings is that number one, it recognizes that systems don't exist in isolation. And the fact that our human rights is dependent on the protection of the living earth system. It's important to recognize that climate change has human rights issues such as climate-induced migration, accessibility to basic needs and food services is limited, food, water, shelter. And there's also increase in terms of vulnerability and threat to violence. Uh, and in some cases, um, like the first speaker has said, it, it, it has an existential threat to entire populations. Entire cultural systems, identities, or particular groups of people are threatened because of climate change. And this is going to get worse. So the World Bank report uh, uh, managing the impacts of climate change uh, predicted that by 2030, our current number of people who are living in below poverty will increase from 702 million to 900 million. And if we do factor in climate change, this number will rise to a billion people. So by 2030, a billion people will be living below poverty line with a number of human rights implications uh, that come with it. So by placing the vulnerable groups at the center of decision making, we're shifting the dynamics. We're not say, no longer talking about them as passive aid recipients. We are focusing on their rights. And one of the interesting things and important things to consider is that Climate change has disproportionate impact on, on certain groups. The way women are affected, the way children are affected, the way coastal communities are affected are different. And therefore, the responses uh, to uh, these groups has to be different. It is also important to recognize that the groups, the most of the vulnerable groups, do not have the social, political, economic leverage to defend their rights against the more powerful perpetrators. What human rights offers is basically a reconfiguration of how you see vulnerability. You're no longer the passive victim in need of aid, but one that has rights and one that 
whose rights need to be upheld. And therein lies the great accountability of duty bearers to hold the rights as well as international <coughs> commitments that have been ratified. So the legality of human rights framing in climate response, it offers a scope for political action, which has the potential to translate social action and transformative change. For example, if I give you an example, a case in point is the first ever people's climate case. Uh, so this year, 10 families from eight countries, including Fiji, uh, is taking the European Parliament and the Council of European Union to the European General Court for allowing high levels of emission until 2030. They're asking the European General Court to rule on the protection of their fundamental rights to life, health, occupation, and property. These families uh, emphasize that climate protection is no longer a diplomatic issue. It's a concrete problem that harms their homes, livelihoods, destroys their children's future. So therein lies the potential of using human rights and, and climate justice as a framework for political action. That is something that probably taking a humanitarian aid response level might not be able to reach. So basically what I'm trying to say here is that it is very, very important to integrate human rights approach in all aspects of climate response, whether it be through loss or damage, whether it be in community development projects, whether it be in terms of uh, green jobs or integrating uh, some kind of vulnerability assessments. Um, the, the, the dilemma is that we are too embedded within the neoliberal system. We are too dependent on climate finance. We are too dependent on humanitarian aid. And, and, and these systems don't exist in opposition. Um, there are inherent tensions in using a humanitarian approach or using a human rights approach. But there are possibilities of merging. There, now, and now uh, governments, uh, donor agencies are recognizing the importance of human rights. Therefore, uh, we can see that these frameworks are being integrated within uh, adaptation plans, within policies, within legislations, uh, and rightfully so. So, in, in other words, I'm reiterating the fact that it's very, very important to have a human rights-based approach and find productive ways of translating these rights into achievable goals, <coughs> policies, plans, and actions. So that there is a shift in priority from capital-based model of unequal trade-offs to recognizing the fact that the, we are all connected and part of this global health system and our actions uh, affect each other. And the fact that that's the reason why everyone has an ethical responsibility towards climate response and that is how we can go to, towards collective action. So, what I basically end by saying is that the path towards transformation cannot be solely hinged on market-based solutions, cannot be solely hinged on neoliberal kind of responses or technologies or technocratic kind of responses to climate change. It requires a greater politicization to demand for action and response. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now we shall move to the next uh, presenter, evaluating uh, climate change relocation in Fiji, a case study of uh, Unitokolo <coughs> village. Um, Teresa, thank you very much.
Good afternoon, uh, everyone. May um, I ask that we all stand? I know that we all are feeling sleepy after uh, having lunch. <coughs> and sing the national anthem of Unido <laughs> 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 All right, we'll just stretch for a while and then we can start. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not Tammy Tabe, the one that is in that program. I'm Teresa Powell. I'm a student of, um, of USP. I'm not a lecturer, I'm not an academia. I'm just a student. And I will be presenting on the, um, the, evaluate, the evaluation of climate change location in Fiji. Uh, we heard about politics, we, he uh, we heard about human rights. Mm. I think I will take you right down to the local level mm. of the real experience that our community people are facing sure. uh, in the impact of our climate change. Um, uh, the Kondrobe province, for those who uh, don't know where this place is, uh, in the other side, the other island of uh, Fiji, Monolevu, and that is where Bunidongoloa is uh, uh, located. Mm. Okay, I guess. Okay, hold on. It has been relocated somewhere. Yeah, somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, uh, that is the old site of uh, Bundong Law before they relocated. Uh, it has been evident that with the increasing impacts of uh, climate change, particularly sea level rise, uh, we all know that um, the salt water intrusion, coastal erosion, and the intensity of natural hazards, such as tropical cyclones, uh, T.C. Winston, for example, um, the Pacific Islanders, they face that. Mm -hmm. uh, across the Pacific have been displaced and forced to relocate from their homes. Mm -hmm. uh, this was true for Wundongola village, as showed in this slide, and they had to relocate it two kilometers inland. Eh? Mm -hmm. Oops, sorry. Okay, they're still relocating. <laughs> Wait a second. Keep up. Okay. Yeah. 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 Uh, that's the new um, site of Wundong uh, Law. Uh, to Kenani, the promised land. Bunindong um, okay. <laughs> was the first uh, planned relocation in Fiji done in 2014. Uh, according to UNCHR, planned relocation is uh, carried out under the authority of the state and is undertaken to protect people from risk and impacts related to disasters and environmental change, including the effects of climate change. Um, that's me. Uh, I'm a student. Um, my previous work, I work in the provincial council. I work with community people. Um, that was me in 2016. Uh, if you heard about Wundong Loa in COP22 and COP23, uh, we are the one in the initial stage of moving these people from their initial place uh, to the new site. So um, in 2016, I went down back to uh, Wundong Loa to do a field work uh, where we do Talano session, we have interviews, uh, field site observations. And in 2017, just last year, I went back to do the integrated vulnerability assessment uh, to just to evaluate the, the impact and lesson learned 
uh, from Wunidong and other locations. Eh? Mm -hmm. uh, and my fieldwork findings was more to examine the barriers and uh, enablers to climate-related location and retreat in Fiji and considers how the experience can inform climate-related location and retreat nationally and globally. And importantly, how it can influence decision and policy makers and guide relocation guidelines. Uh, for your information, Fiji is still on a draft relocation guideline and relocation is not included in the climate change policy as an adaptation option. Mm -hmm. Uh, the fieldwork in 2016 was more on uh, to look at the decision-making process for location, um, land and property rights, resources, money and livelihood, environment trigger and relocation as climate change adaptation measures. And also in 2017, uh, for your information, why I keep on going to this community, I have very strong link with Kavundongala. Mm -hmm. I, I worked with them for almost six years from the initial stage of moving them to the new. So that, that stems my interest of keeping going back to this community to see and evaluate the impact of climate change and their relocation to the new site. Eh? Mm -hmm. um, so the fieldwork results, this is after, this is in 2017, 2016 and 17, they relocated in 2014. This is after 13, uh, three weeks, uh, sorry, three years of relocation that we went back to evaluate the impact of our relocation. Um, Decision-making, local leadership, um, it's noted that from the fieldwork results that the local leadership is very important. Community leader was a strong advocate for relocation. For, uh, for information with Wundong Law, the community leaders themselves, they initiate it. They, they request government because they experience the impact of climate change. Mm -hmm. So with strong leadership from community, it influences government mm -hmm. decision-making. Yeah? So it, it's more an integrated uh, approach when it comes to relocation. Um, participation of affected communities was highly relevant. This included community leaders, women, elderly, youth, and children. Uh, also from the from this, it's found out that informed consent was sorted from individuals. This is the result of the fieldwork. Okay? I'm talking about the result of when we went back and interviewed them. Uh, the informed consent was sorted from individuals, households, and communities. That means prior consultation was done before they moved to the to the new, new site. Okay? There, uh, there was reduced disruptions due to short distance moves because they moved within their original, from the original site within their customary land boundaries and they relocated all at one, which means the whole community moved at once. That, were, that means that there was less disruption in the movement because the whole community uh, moved at once. Eh? Uh, there was no hosting community, for example, moving the Balbans to, to Rabi. It's, uh, it's, you are not going to another foreign country. You are just moving, they are just moving within the uh, customary uh, boundary, eh? mm -hmm. which, is, which is easy for Bundongolo when they moved. Uh, the community willingness to relocate. In the beginning, um, the old people, they were more emotional because of the tie to their, to their land. So they are a bit reluctant of moving. And uh, there was no, um, they said that they would want to move because they have their ancestors buried in mm -hmm. their old site. Yes. And then at last they agreed to move to the new site. Uh, access to information, retrospective accounts that everyone was aware of climate change risk because they experience it every day. Um, uh, number six, baseline information, 
uh, for information when Bundongoloa moves to the new site, there was no baseline information of formal monitoring that was conducted uh, of, to inform the moving. Eh? Uh, in terms of the length of uh, decision, the, the request of location was done in 2007. The delay, delay was the availability of funds from the government. Um, in number eight, previous adaptation, yes, there were previous adaptation measures. There was two seawalls were constructed in 1978 mm -hmm. and 1980s and also retreat of frontline houses on two occasions. Uh, on number nine, community contributions, yes, to the resources in terms of timber, labor, carpentry work, site preparation and catering. Uh, on terms of land property, this is uh, the findings of the fieldwork. No land or communal dispute since it was the Matangali land or a clan land, and they agreed to the new site. In terms of resources, internationally, yes, ILO came in, government partners and community contribution were all contributed to the, to the location. Environmental triggers, uh, increased awareness of climate change impacts in Bundong law led to flexible responses to local experience of climatic and environmental change in which triggers relocation requests. Example, Bundong Loa had experience and had implemented the seawall in the last decades. Eh? Uh, in terms of livelihood, yes, this is after the, during the relocation, uh, this is some of the livelihood opportunities or the project that was implemented uh, in Bundong Loa. Uh, you can see in picture four, uh, picture four, after six months of solar engineering course at Barefoot College, India, uh, this lady, uh, Miss Cecilia, solar electrified Wundong Law when they moved it. So ju they just used her to uh, electrify or install the solar system for the whole of uh, Wundong Law uh, houses. All right, I mentioned that in 2017 I went back to do the IVA, or you call it the Integrated Vulnerability Assessment. This is a tool that is developed, once developed by USP, and also was adopted uh, at the Climate Change uh, Division at the government level. Eh? So that is Wundongoloa in the old site. Just previously, my visit to Wundongoloa this year, that is the old site. It looked like a ghost home, and the new site on the other side, that is, you can see it. Eh? So um, uh, uh, the old site had left idle with no maintenance. Um, the villagers left behind their homes to occupy the new uh, built home. In the old site, there was 21 houses in the, whole, in, in the old home and 33 in the new, I guess, because when they moved to the new site on the right side, they moved as a nuclear family. Mm -hmm. Whereas on the old site, it was more as extended family. On the new site, the house was a bit small. On the old side, the houses were more bigger because they were lived as extension, uh, extended family. So um, that is a look of Wundongoloa. If you go there, this is how Wundongoloa look like um, for your information. Eh? All right, we will go to the um, to IVA. This is a scorecard for Wundongoloa. The IVA um, uh, assess the human security objectives um, against the livelihood assets. Uh, one as worse and five is very good. Uh, you can see that the total score for Bundong uh, Loa is still sit in 2.67, and the, the community is still vulnerable after four years of relocation. Um, I guess maybe after another three years, if you go back, maybe there will be improvement or maybe a bit worse. So this is as it is stand this year, the, the, the scorecard for Bundong uh, Loa, uh, which means that uh, they are still uh, are vulnerable in terms, maybe not in terms of climate change, but in terms of 
where they were located uh, to the new site. Eh? Okay. The top four vulnerable areas for Bundongoloa as it is now, uh, as in number one, water security. This is the new site for information. It's just after three years of location. Uh, no proper water management system. Uh, in number two, uh, security of place for your information. Um, um, the reason I'm uh, putting this up is this can inform um, a, uh, a proper uh, relocation in the future. Eh? So um, you can see number two, the, the community, the relocation is still not complete. Uh, drainage is not even done. Uh, in terms of security of place, uh, incomplete drainage, uh, incomplete community hall, no kitchen, no rooms for women in the new homes and evidence of soil erosion and landslide. That is where women are vulnerable. In the new homes, there is no kitchen, and also there was no, um, there was no rooms. It was just an open space. So you talk about the human here, yeah, the, the women, how vulnerable they so, are. Madam, just this remind you, there's three more minutes to go. Okay. Um, in terms of, of that, uh, I'm on that. So, of course, they have adaptation options. They are, I mean, they locate community, they've um, built a new water tank, they've got farming, and they also got, uh, got uh, tilapia, the farming. So I'll talk about key challenges. Uh, key challenges in, um, in this one is community consultation. There was less local communities that experienced adverse climatic and environmental changes. In terms of financial resources for relocation, uh, there was not much. There was available, but not enough. Uh, there was no consistent... Um, no consistent um, um, rigorous process for assessing and monitoring. Uh, in terms of um, alternative location, uh, the, the site is not stable. Uh, there was weak response to social and cultural preferences. And number six, there was no clear constitution, um, uh, institutional framework and process for location planning. And number seven, since Wundong Law was the first of its kind, researchers from around the world, America, Australia, New Zealand, Mexico, you name it, Philippines, Bangkok, Argentina, Pakistan, India, I was there when they came. Uh, the whole world was in Bundongolo, but there was no clear guideline and purpose was in place to safeguard the community and government as well. Eh? So my recommendations, uh, outcome of this research, sorry, I will talk, that was my last day. Recommendation, decision-making must involve meaningful consultation and participation, consent and partnership with communities. Number two, increase capacity and human resources, especially at the provincial and divisional level, because they are the ones that look after the community. Um, thresholds need to be uh, carefully considered and defined. Um, in terms of assessment, it should, uh, assessment should, be, uh, should be done to determine relocation. And relocation is considered a national, international climate change adaptation option. Therefore, funding availability from international donors, partners, and government for climate-related migration and relocation are required. Six, um, approach relocation as an opportunity to improve lives and livelihoods and to invest in a support community strength. Gender inclusiveness. Participation of women in the relocation decision-making process in village and council meeting is important. Uh, inclusion of women in capacity building uh, in terms of training is important. Uh, involved and contributed in community development plan. Women uh, should be included in this as well. Um, and uh, my last uh, slide. Sorry. Um, 
I, I think this is important that uh, a clear institutional frameworks and processes for relocation planning, implementation, and monitoring is important. Um, to have a central point of coordination in relocation planning and implementation to support communication and management. Like I said before, give you okay. Just give me three minutes yeah. to finish that. As um, as I said before, there was no uh, relocation guideline, and there were uh, the, the relocation is not part of climate change policy adaptation measures. So now is the in thing. I, I believe, and I rec uh, highly recommend that this should be part of uh, of the of the plan, eh? and it should be also included in the um, government development uh, strategic development plan. And relocation should, should be also part of the government budget. Uh, in conclusion, um, although there has been extensive research and analysis on migration and displacement in response to climate change impacts, there is very limited focus on planned climate change relocation, as areas are made uninhabitable by the impacts of climate change, or where relocation reduces ongoing vulnerability on climate-related threats, there is significant effort needed to identify challenges and opportunities relating to relocation and to learn from experience. So last resort option is relocation. Thank you. Thank you. We move to the last presenter. Okay. Whilst, um, I, yeah, whilst I get up, you stand up as well. Worth a while just to stretch. Is it an incentive to stand up? <laughs> <laughs> That's why you get the right. Come back. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I have some. Save it for the crop. Coming back to the stretch. Oh. Oh. It's one of those. Come. There it is. Uh, okay. The last step. Three steps. It's Oh, yes. How do you um, make it big? Oh, I think it's because it's in the yes. PDF. Yes. Yeah, yeah, be loud. <laughs> okay, I hope you are all uh, looking forward to your cups of tea and a little bit of sugar in a little bit of time and um, looking forward to your questions as well. Um, so, like other speakers, I'm talking on behalf of a team at the Institute of Sustainable Futures at the University of Technology, Sydney. It's a bit of a mouthful, but basically we're the Institute for Sustainable Futures. Um, is a small institute within UTS and we do um, research and consultancy work and we also have a PhD program if you're interested. Uh, so I'm speaking on behalf of a team, myself, um, Tamara McGow and also Joanne Chong. Oh, wrong one. Okay, so this is um, my presentation and yeah, just to frame it as, as looking at learning from the past 
and to inform potential or possibilities for the future. So I'll, I'll explain more about that uh, later. But as um, the title suggests, Gender Transformative Climate Change Action in the Pacific, what does that mean? Hopefully after this um, time we'll be able to, to share. So my, um, uh, my presentation will talk a little bit about some research that I've um, been doing um, and also about this peer review process. Um, when we put in the abstract for this conference, we were thinking that we would come with a shiny new toy for everyone, but in fact we've come with a half-baked idea. So really looking forward to you helping to um, create something um, together and be chefs in the kitchen. Um, I'll be talking about key conceptual understandings of gender transformation and also climate change, just to kind of put some meaning to those words. And then to um, share with you some enablers of gender transformative climate change action that we identified as part of our research. Um, and then what I want to do is provide to you this half-baked idea that we have, which is essentially guidance for Plan International Australia, who commissioned this research. Um, to guide them in this practice. So we've come up with a, with a, a guidance framework, which is this half-baked idea, um, and I'll share that with you, and then I'll, we'll talk a little bit about what next. So just to let you know that um, this work was commissioned by Plan International Australia, and it's part of their broader um, <coughs> scope of work around climate change. So they're doing some work with WWF and CSIRO in Solomon Islands, and they've been doing some work. Um, some of you might have heard of 4CA, which was a, a child-focused climate change program as well that um, finished a couple of years back. So this is part of their extended work. Um, similar for us, this is part of our... Um, our interest in climate change, we do a lot of um, work around climate change both technically and socially at, um, at ISF and also around gender. So I've done a lot of work in gender across different sectors like gender and wash, um, gender and refugees, um, yeah, and now um, gender and climate change. So the objective of the research was um, for PLAN, it was to define to them what gender transformative climate change action looks like in order to inform future program design. And so really it was about how do these two um, topics intersect? How does climate change action um, provide the potential for gender transformation? And so what we were aiming to do is, is to develop a framework or, or tool to, to help them to think about this process. Um, and so what is uh, gender transformation? So this is Plan International's um, definition um, that we're sort of working from. And as you can see, it's really about not just dealing with the, the current day-to-day um, -day issues of inequality, but the underlying um, unequal gender relations and to advance the position and value of women and girls in society. So that was a really important sort of distinction from us from um, other types of gender. So this was another sort of... Um, a uh, way for us to conceptualise this gender transformation and us, for us as researchers to look at past programming and to say, okay, to what extent has past programming been gender transformative in the sense of, of, of um, uh, addressing those fundamental sort of um, inequalities? Um, and so we looked at programming in terms of gender blind, gender sensitive, um, gender specific and also um, gender transformative. Another sort of um, conceptual understanding that we had was uh, Moss's framework, um, which 
I'm a quite a simple person, so I find this really helpful um, to me <laughs> to look at, at the world through this lens. And as I put on my glasses, I can actually read the slide, um, which helps getting old. It's a sad thing, isn't it? Really? Can't read. It's climate change. It's climate change. <laughs> Smarter do it. So yeah, so for us we were able to look at we were able to sort of consider, okay, um, practical needs of women and also strategic needs of women. And when we think about um, gender transformative change, it's really around those strategic needs of women, of, of their um, right, like in terms of rights um, framework, about their right to participate in decisions that affect their, their lives. So it's really about empowerment and how they are part of, of, of their own lives and how they can make choices and decisions um, for themselves and for their families. And so what we wanted to do was to consider to what extent does a climate change action program support um, to support those strategic needs of women. Another interesting thing that we, we talked about, and it goes to the heart of other presentations here as well, was what, how do we think about climate change? Um, and how do we think about um, broader definitions of, of climate change and, and different roles and, and actors of those? So we talked about climate change adaptation, and we saw lots of examples both in Fiji and Solomon Islands around climate change action. We also thought it was important, especially as being um, researchers from a very developed country that has a lot of cars and pollution, about climate justice and what is the role of, um, of NGO practice in terms of climate justice, you know, and, and what role does, uh, does an NGO have to um, support communities and work with and, and walk alongside communities in, in that climate justice space. Similarly, with around climate change advocacy and child-centred approaches. So PLAN um, has um, a very much um, focus on, on children and children as being um, voice and advocates for their own worlds. And so we wanted to consider those elements as well as part of a programming approach. I sort of missed a slide somewhere, but we basically what we did was we carried out research um, through literature reviews. So as you all know, there's a thousand and one different resources <laughs> out there already. Um, so we did um, a literature review of, of current guidance and current materials around climate change and specifically focused on, on gender and climate change. And we saw that there was quite a, a lot of resources in the Pacific. Uh, we also did uh, field work in um, Fiji and also Solomon Islands. And so we went to two um, villages who had participated in plan, plans previous work around climate change. And so what we aim to do, taking a strengths-based approach, we aim to say, okay, well, what, what worked well as part of your um, previous climate change programming? And even though that those previous um, climate change programming didn't have a gender transformative outcome imperative, we wanted to consider to what extent those programs had supported um, gender equality and looking along that spectrum to what extent they had sort of supported um, or, um, yeah, supported um, gender trans transfor transformation. So what we did as part of this research was, in taking this strengths-based approach, thinking, okay, well, what's already happening now that could be enablers for the future? If we want to, if we want um, climate change action programming to be transformative in terms of supporting those underlying equal values of everyone in the community, what can we build on now? And so I'll just take you through a few slides, and this won't be 
rocket science to you. This, you, you guys know this all, but it was really about um, the, the intentionality of of these types of um, enablers and moving them forward into the future. So for us, you know, at that village level, we really saw the importance of different spaces for participation and um, recognising people's current um, capacities and capabilities to participate in different forums and supporting um, different groups to participate in different ways. So um, one of the important things from that we, we heard from people was the importance of side by side, that it's men and women together. Um, gender transformation is not about a contest, it's not about a competition, it's not about bringing one up for someone to come down, it's about side by side and how do we support <coughs> side by side. That was a really important um, element of, um, of the enabling factors. Also, women's di dialogue and empowerment. So women-only spaces to support women to have their own voice and to have their own um, dialogue and sharing together and building that solidarity. Another really important element was male champions, and we've heard that th in, through various um, speakers um, today, the importance of, of um, males being champions of women's... Um, uh, um, participation and we actually heard in this um, village one of the men in the men group talking about the aspiration for the future he said I want women to be um, more part of our decision-making process you know and so yeah that's you know that's to me transformation um, girls and boys as models of gender transformation as well so we heard examples from say the children and also plan and others about how children relate as girls and boys together in an equal way and that, how that transforms adults' perceptions of both girls and boys. Um, and also, too, how that then translates to those girls and boys when they're adults as well. So that was part of the transformational approach as well. Uh, another element was um, governance policy and in inst institutions. So to recognise that there is a mandate. Um, you know, and we're talking about plan. Here, it's a, it's a big INGO, they're working with local partners. How do they work in Pacific Island countries? So it's about recognising the mandate that exists and building from that. Um, to also think about um, leveraging um, government policy for strengthened implementation. So often we see that the policies are in place or the plans are in place, but they don't reach down to the community level. So how can plans and its partners support that? And also another element that we were... Um, hearing about was, yes, we have the gender policy over here and we have the climate change policy over here, but they're not connecting. And so how do, how is there a role to support that, that intersection, that inter interaction? So in terms of programming approaches, um, there needs to be uh, cross-sector action. So we really heard about the importance of NGOs, governments working together, um, technical departments working with social departments, etc. We also um, heard and, um, and really believe that it needs to be informed by local gender-focused organisations. So especially in Fiji, there's, you know, the, the women's movement is so strong and a diverse gender movement is, is so strong as well. So how does PLAN and its partners... Are you kidding me? Madam, you have three minutes. Okay, great. Okay, so seeing is believing. Um, showing people that it's possible and it makes a difference. Um, and 
In terms of uh, practical to strategic, so what we what we identified was that a lot of programs were meeting women's practical needs in water, in agricultural, etc. And that was an entry point to then think about women's role in decision making and at that broader level. But there's caution about how to re um, how does that reinforce existing gendered norms? So that please ask me a question about that. Okay, so dimensions of gender transformative climate change action. I'll just take you through here. So um, preconditions for action. This is around, uh, you know, making sure that there's a foundation which is built within the local context and which is um, built on local capacities and existing commitments. Uh, multiple spaces for inclusive, active and connected participation. So it's not just that you have different spaces for different people, but that you connect those spaces together and people have an opportunity to share and, and talk with each other and have um, conversations around contested ideas. Uh, this one is about community-led action learning pathways for climate change. It's a lot of words, but essentially what it means is community-led, and we heard about this from other speakers, the importance of like a community-centric approach. It's really about communities' own knowledge and sharing that knowledge within the community and also bringing other knowledges together. Uh, action learning, so we heard this morning the importance of, of adaptation. So it's not just setting a goal and saying, okay, this is what we're going to achieve. Gender, gendered relations are changing all the time. Climate change is changing all the time. So we need ways of programming which respond to that. So what we're talking about is having sort of um, uh, incremental moments and stopping and testing and seeing how that, did that work or not and then, and then going forward. So rather than thinking long-term, thinking stepping stones. Uh, so... What we need to do is we need to think about change as um, action learning and monitoring and evaluation as part of um, that, that action learning process rather than sort of setting up the whole thing at the start. Um, so next steps, that's a rocket being launched, which I kind of thought was... North Korea. North Korea, there you go. But then it's a Fiji sunrise. So, um, so we've got a peer review process at the moment. So this is part of our peer review process. Really interested in your thoughts. Um, plan is reviewing what we've written as a, as a draft. Obviously, this has just been a very short snapshot. And um, then plan um, aim to pilot this framework. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is the last uh, presenter. And now time is given for comments and questions. Uh, I think it's 30 minutes. So I'm allowing time now for comments or questions on the four presenters. <coughs> Thank you. Should I just, uh, just, uh, uh, I can just speak? Yes. <laughs> um, I just have a question for Teresia. Um, I was just curious, like given all the consultation um, and the process, you mentioned like there was some issues with just being one room and you also mentioned just something about the water and some issues about that. So I was just curious about what was learned from that, like why that happened and what was learned from that and how that can be, how much of a problem that was and how it can be prevented. 
I think uh, I, I don't have much time on talking about the challenges. Eh? So uh, for Fiji, the uh, the um, different land ministries they buy in instead of there was a central body to look after the relocation. So they have their own contribution to to the relocation. So the funding was not enough to cater for the whole. So um, that was a challenge. So my recommendation was. Funding should be enough for relocation. So the problem in Bundang Law, the funding was not so enough much. to complete the relocation. Because the, uh, it was a buy-in from different land ministries. So the Ministry of um, Agriculture, they look at different things. Like <coughs> and then um, police, they came in to help with the relocation. So it's, it's a buy-in of different. So there was no central body to relocate the whole community. And there was the relocation, the, there was no... Uh, the, the budget was not allocated for, for relocation. So that was a problem for Hundongla. And that should be a lesson learned to guide the relocation guideline and also to help India to improve or to, to improve the, the climate change. So now climate change policy in Fiji is on review. So that should help review the, the climate change policy. Thank you. Next is... Next again, Chisholm from Karen Vanuatu. Also a question for Teresia. Um, obviously in Vanuatu at the moment, there's a, a very significant relocation being planned for the people of Ambon. Um, really interested in the point you made around resources and the need for long-term resources. Um, so maybe following on from that question, what would be your advice to donors about the, the length of engagement and how they can engage to really support successful relocation in the long term? The second question um, was you mentioned around the importance of gender inclusiveness, um, and I'm wondering if there's you know three three things that you could pull out, which would be your top recommendations for really um, making sure that we're addressing the gender issues that come up in relocation. Mm. I think uh, in terms of the the donors, um, I also uh, mentioned that in my relocation uh, the recommendations that uh, relocation should be uh, rather and slow, so that. Uh, the buy-in, there uh, proper uh, there's a should be proper process uh, in terms of like I also note um, put it out in my presentation there was no baseline assessment was done for Wundongwa, so when they were located there was no proper guideline uh, in moving them to the to the new site. I think that was uh, what I will recommend for Vanuatu that um, the word rather and slow make it rather and slow so that when funding comes in, it's not only donor, it has to be an integrated approach so that government, um, line ministries, and even uh, um, and even researchers, they were more intruders <coughs> into the community. Yeah, I will say they are intruders. Uh, intruders in the way that they, uh, they get information from the community and they use it as a publication, they use it as a journal, but there was no benefit to the community and government as a whole. So to me, lesson learned from Bundanglo should help other Pacific countries because to me, they were more violated instead of helping them. So I mentioned names like even as far as Argentina, they come as far as Russia to come to, to Wundongla. So if you go to Wundongla, there's about three big books full of researchers. They went down to Wundongla. So to me, lesson learned for Fiji should help Vanuatu. It should be rather, it should be slow, mm -hmm. So and it should be a last adaptation options for, for, for climate change. Eh? And in terms of gender, uh, I will take you to the story of uh, Wundongla. Like when, when decision making, especially for communities that Women's voice needs to be heard in terms of even house planning. For Bundong the voice of women was not, uh, they were not part of the house planning.
So if you go there, it's an open space. There's no privacy for women. And then violations of you know, the women's rights in terms of cases like rape is anything for Fiji. So those are the things that we should look at. Uh, in terms of women, uh, they should be part of decision making. Uh, they should be the one that in Fiji, in, in Itaki communities, every community should have a development plan. So women should be part of the development plan voices to help in, in implementing projects. Uh, in terms of Wunandangla, um, and this will be the same as Vanuatu, uh, the main places is fishing. You know, they are fishers. They, are, they, they, they go and fish for Wunandangla. When they moved upland, it's the woman, the vulnerable one. They have to go back and go and fish from the ghost village. Mm -hmm. and, and this is something that should be important to include when you, when you talk about relocation. Uh, it's good, it's a planned relocation, but it should be rather and slow, so that all these important issues should be included mm -hmm. before you move. So there should be proper baseline uh, assessment, proper planning, when funding is available from donors. Um, and on top of it, uh, one issue with the donors Sorry, I'm not only the student. I was part. I worked for climate change divisions for for four years in Fiji um, before I become a student. So the problem is donors. It's the process. How how you get the funding? It looks so big. For example, GCF and all that. It looked attractive, but for you to get that, it takes you a lot of energy to get that money because of the process, the document. The, uh, you have to have uh, children's policy. You have to all these all these little things. Then you can get that uh, that that funding. Yeah? So it, it, that is a challenge to acquire funding from, uh, especially from GCF. So uh, I would rather say that the grant was more um, accessible for Fiji to get that small grants from different USAID, uh, USAID to help in that. So the buy-in of different uh, line ministries, the buy-in of different funders, work together before you said, okay, move. Otherwise, this is what will happen to Bundongola. I'm not against the government, but I will say that it should be properly planned mm -hmm. and there should be a proper framework and guideline of uh, relocation before you do that. Okay? Thank you. I'll take last one. The last one. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much. I have a comment and a question as well. Uh, I'm just to follow up on the previous question that was raised. Uh, I think uh, somebody mentioned that, uh, like I mean, like you, Teresia, you mentioned that uh, relocation can be slow and gradual. But I think in every context it's different. Like we cannot compare Vanuatu with Fiji, where um, in Mumbai there's a eruption and then people need to suddenly move. Like it cannot be slow and gradual. But in Fiji, like with the climate change, it is slow and gradual process. Here it can be, you know, like that. Uh, so that is uh, one comment. And the question is. Like um, I saw that in the first case of relocation to Fiji, it seems that it is a case of like out of the frying pan into the fire because people are moving from you know this place and then into another place where there are so much issues like sanitation, water, and women don't have the kitchen and, mm -hmm. and so much uh, issues. And then also the other thing that I see is that uh, uh, from the extended family, then people are you know becoming nuclear families. So the social network, the support that the parents are seeking from their younger like children who are married, I mean, it, it is like you know not there anymore because people are uh, going into the you know nuclear families. So that is one of the things. I don't know whose decision was it to you know, have the nuclear families. The and the other thing is, 
uh, you also mentioned some of the income generating projects and it seems that the people are on, taking on completely new income generating mm -hmm. projects and what happened to the like the, pre uh, the previous things people were doing were fishing like they could still go and fish it's just the erosion that is uh, um, uh, I'm sorry it's only the coastal part that is e eroding otherwise uh, the existing income generating projects, I think, you know, people could continue to take that one. Yeah, I think mm. you got a good point. I think that was the reason I picked up all the information that I collected to help us um, in planning or for one more two years. I know that uh, it's important to you to include all, all those things. Mm -hmm. But in terms, of, um, in terms of income generating, I will agree with you. Uh, in terms of tilapia, they, they ask the women to look after the tilapia, but they don't have the capacity to, uh, to run the tilapia farm. And, and that is lesson learned. To me, that is lesson learned. To me, uh, uh, it was a successful uh, relocation, but there's a lot of lesson learned that you need to learn from. So for other Pacific countries who's planning to uh, do relocation, this is something that you should look at uh, in terms of the challenges that uh, the community were facing. Yeah? Uh, lastly, I will, um, something that is very sensitive about Wundang Law that in terms of the, the change of culture, the, there was no playground. I mean, we talk about Pacific people, we need playground. There was no playground for young people to play. And, that, and that, to me, that's important. Uh, the women, they start to change the way they dress. The, the church <coughs> denominations from Methodist alone, there was about five more uh, new uh, denominations. That, so those are the things that, I mean, something new that was included in when they moved uh, to the place. Eh? It's, it's something sensitive. There's a lot of lessons learned. There's a lot of challenges. And to me, I have a lot of recommendations. I even have 10 there. That is a findings from the, from the research, the fieldwork. And that should be accessible to people who, to countries that they need to be relocated. I, I, I guess you got a good point, and, and that is part of uh, the findings and challenges and recommendations as well that are put into that, uh, to that relocation process. And thank you very much, uh, Mr. William, Madam Kashul, uh, Teresa, and Karen. Thank you for your presentation. Let's give them a hand. And a hand for a chair, please. You have been listening to a podcast from the Development Policy Centre. For more information on our work, visit our website at devpolicy.anu.edu.au. To join the conversation on Australian aid, Papua New Guinea, the Pacific and Global Development Policy, visit our blog at devpolicy.org. At the blog, you can also sign up to our newsletter to get all the latest updates, or you can connect with us on social media. Thanks for listening. 